On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Rush's Presto. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory, Colby Dransfield, and Tom Corcoran as we tackle the transition album from Rush, Presto. Good to be here. Very, very exciting. So it's, uh, we, we've been on a bit of a hiatus trying to get this scheduling sorted out, but it would appear that we've done so. And um, so here we are. Um, if you guys are okay, I'll, I'll read the uh, sort of official preamble, and then we, we can get right into it. Let's do it. Fantastic. All right. Presto was released in November 21st, 1989, um, as usual, uh, actually not as usual, it was released on the Anthem label in Canada, but Atlantic everywhere else. This was their first Atlantic release, as I recall. Is that correct? I believe so. Sounds yep. right. The uh, band lineup remains ever the same. Getty, Alex, and Neil. Track listing goes Show Don't Tell, Chain Lightning, The Pass, War Paint, Scars, Presto, Superconductor, Anagram for Mungo, Red Tide, Hand Over Fist, and Available Light. Presto is the 13th studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, released in 1989. It was recorded at Le Studio in Morin Heights and at McClear Place in Toronto. Presto was Rush's first album with their new international label Atlantic Records, which the band signed to in early 1989, after deciding to not renew its contract with Mercury Polygram Records. The band had intended to co-produce the album with Peter Collins, who had produced their previous two studio albums, Power Windows and Hold Your Fire. However, he reluctantly declined the offer for personal reasons. Instead, Rupert Hine, who had been approached for Grace Under Pressure, produced the album. All singles released from the album, Show Don't Tell, The Pass, and Superconductor, charted with Show Don't Tell hitting number one on the Album Rock Tracks chart. The album itself charted at number 16 on the Billboard 200 album chart, and sales of Presto earned the band a gold record in the U.S. and platinum in Canada. The album has been remastered and reissued twice, once in 2004 as a continuation of the Rush Remaster series, and again in 2013 as part of the box set the studio albums, 1989 to 2007. So that, gentlemen, is our subject matter for the day. Now, I obviously have spent ridiculous amounts of time here on Progressive Palaver railing against the so-called synth era and how it didn't really exist in everything else. 
that being said, I've alluded previously to a story from the days of my youth, um, specifically when this album came out. So this was, um, let's see, I got to figure this out. So I was in college. I was at Delaware. I remember it vividly. And a buddy of mine, yeah, so it was my sophomore year, and there was a, a group of guys in another room, um, sort of in the next building over, and my roommate and I, and then these guys all kind of liked Rush, and, but as I also mentioned, I really didn't know Hold Your Fire that well, even though I owned it, um, but I had, I had the same perception that everyone else did. And I remember going into this guy's room because he had just gone down to Rainbow Records, which was the record store in Newark, Delaware, and he had purchased Presto. And he's like, oh, I got the new Rush. You guys got to come hear it. And so we went into his room and he, he put it on and Show Don't Tell comes out. And I remember saying, well, at least Alex is back. <laughs> well, there you go. You you believed in, so, in Pharaoh once. So I, yeah, I mean, back in the day, I believed in it as much as as everyone else. But obviously, we have we have gone to great lengths to consider um, the fact that Alex Lifeson is all over um, the previous couple albums, and in fact, was not um, you know hijacked in any way, shape, or form. But that being said, clearly, this album is a different sounding album, and. While we don't have audio because I'm technically challenged, Tom and I did have the opportunity to actually speak with Rupert Hine about um, his production time with Rush, including this album. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, and I, I don't know how far we want to go into that. I think we probably want to deal with, with the Rupert content maybe separately. Um, but he did say um, that, you know, his idea going in, because that was one of the big questions. Where did the sound come from? It's vastly different. It's very Rupert Heine, if I can say that. But it's vastly sure. different from, from everything else, from everything else that Rush had done. And and apparently, you know, it was his desire to remove the synthesizers from what Rush was doing and get back to, um, you know, that that rock trio type vibe. Which is, you know, kind of strange coming from Rupert Hine, who is not one to shy away from synthesizers or technology of any nature. Um, but but this album is clearly different, and um, you know, as as I've been sort of preparing for this portion of the palaver, looking at both this album as well as Roll the Bones, yeah, I, I think this album actually is singular. I, I think. Roll the Bones actually fits in much better sonically with the whole spectrum, and Presto seems to be sort of coming out of left field. I agree with that. It's a very dry album, is how I always thought of it. You know, it's very yeah. It is. The effects are very. What the word for it? it? It sounds great to me. There's no, you know, a lot of the other Rush albums with, you know, some of the keyboard enhancements and a lot of different guitar sounds. It always, those always felt a little more colorful, I guess, is the word that best uh, fits what I'm trying to say. This one always sounded so gray and dry. 
not in a bad way, but it just, like you said, it really just sort of stand. It sounds like something that totally stands alone. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's it's funny you should use the word gray, especially given the cover for this album, which may have something to do with it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Ken, well, uh, I suppose this might be a good segue to the 1989 releases. Now that we're talking about production value, we love this segment. Yes, please. This is a good segment for us. Um, uh, particularly on the Palaver, we have celebrated King's X. Gretchen goes to Nebraska. Yes, yes, we have a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are you talking about? What is that? Is that a cough drop? <laughs> we we love Gretchen goes to Nebraska. Um, we're also big fans of Morellian Seasons End, also 1989. That was a good year. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Um, Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Hal, 1989. Peter Gabriel's Passion. Um, Dream Theater had When Dream and Day Unite release. Ooh, that was so, good. So, uh, uh, um, yeah, depending on which direction you want to go, uh, Fate's Warning had the Perfect Symmetry release. Uh, there's a list. Uh, it's not bad. For, you know, the, the quote-unquote death of progressive music, 1989 is not a bad year. Oh, oh, um, uh, but we also get um, Mother's Milk, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, Joe, you turned me on to Agent Orange. They had a release in 1989. Uh, and the lesser-known Nirvana releases happened in 1989 on the cusp of, uh, of uh, uh, whatever, their fame. So, so, so it's interesting that we get such a bright AOR-type release from Rush right on the heels of of funk and the doom and gloom of grunge. This was the 80s going out in a bang. <laughs> Presto. There you go. There you go. All right, so that's 1989. Nice. Nice. Interesting. So what do we make of that context? Anything? I mean, other than the fact that Prog rock wasn't dead. And, you know, I guess that even begs the question is, you know, how proggy is this album? Well, this is, um, it's interesting because, you know, you brought up, Joe, that um, Roll the Bones and Presto sort of, it's, they're almost um, in the wrong order chronologically. If you listen to them, you would expect to hear Roll the Bones um prior to press yeah. um i agree with that i just um i just found it interesting and i know you don't want to talk too much about um the interview we had with with rupert it's sort of hard not to when we're talking about presto so i just i might just occasionally bring it up but yeah I, well and and, and I, I think you know i think we can touch on certain things but maybe if you know to the extent that we can sort of withhold every detail that we have just to make something sure. more interesting sort of on its own. Absolutely. Um, with regard to um, Rupert producing Presto, the first album that he produced for Rush, you and I found it absolute, and you just said this really, 
but I just wanted to go over it again. You and I found it remarkable that if this is, if Presto is them kind of getting back to a more standard Rush sound, it is very ironic that Rupert Hine was the one to actually um, get them into this place. Because if you listen to Rupert's music, his personal music or, you know, the Howard Jones and, and the, all the stuff that he did, all that stuff is very, very synth uh, heavy. And, um, and it was just interesting. I mean, Rupert himself was like, he didn't understand why they kept calling him to produce. He was like, I don't, <laughs> I'm not really your guy. I mean, this is what he, he, stop he, he, call, he was stop telling calling me. <laughs> yeah, well, he was really, um, you know, he was really like, I don't know why, um, you know, you guys, you know, really want me to produce an album for you. Um, and I guess, so, I, I mean, jumping into to Presto, it's ironic that someone like Rupert Hine, having his background, um, saw Rush in a certain light as this, you know, three-piece more of a, a, a core group of musicians, and they he, he sort of brought them back to that place, and at least on Presto. Um, and so I, I just, that by itself, I found amazing, and I, I, was, I, I was really enlightened by, by that. Um, so I guess... You know, there's a lot of Rupert stuff I want to say, but I'm trying to I'm trying to hold back. Um, <laughs> I guess I won't um, tell the story about um, why he really didn't want to do it in regards to. Um, should I say yeah. that one? Okay, no. right, off on you got to hold that one. <laughs> okay, okay, all right. Oh, labor teaser, man! You brutal. <laughs> Not right. <laughs> <laughs> all right i'll let someone take over from here before i spill beans <laughs> oh my goodness oh goodness gracious well i mean okay, okay. I, um i used the letters aor did you guys catch that 10 minutes ago i did and, catch it okay yes. and, and 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 i'm just wondering are you guys on board can, can we say that you know, Russ said, you know, uh, this progressive stuff is a little complicated. It may not be selling right now. And they just started playing rock. And it translates to AOR for me. You know, Ken, this, it, it's interesting you bring this up because I've been, you know, mentally struggling with this as well as, as sort of a way to bring the whole synth era conversation to, an, to a close in that. You'll you never know, bring it to a close. Well, but, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Joe. All right, but but no. So so think about it this way. You know, if they they clearly Rush has a long history of sort of mirroring what's going on in the music industry as a whole at any given time period. They started out as a blues band, and they went sort of proggy. Then they started to bring in, you know. Um, the synthesizers came in. They started to write, you know, tighter, tighter Albert, tighter songs in terms of, of of that, and you know, bringing in elements from you know the police and 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 all the the reggae stuff, and and you know, 
when all this is said and done, mm. when you look at counterparts and beyond, you know, and they start to, to sound like some of the darker, heavier things that were going on in music at that time. So, I mean, is this just a group of guys who sort of respond to what's going on around them? And is, is that really what we're seeing here? That's a question. I don't have the answer. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, Paul, you know, alluded to that in the prior episodes that they were, you know, picking up pop influences and whatnot and the police and uh, uh, Andy Summer, Stuart Copeland, whatever, reggae, whatever. Yeah, they just they absorbed everything. It was fantastic. Um, well, yeah. you know, I, I might agree with that more if um roll the bones had come before presto I, I think what you were maybe getting at joe is because presto is a little bit more raw and the 90s brought more of a raw sound with you know the grunge and whatever but the thing is then they're following the follow-up album was roll the bones and that's um oh, a different sound so is that kind of what you were you were you were you were getting at well i i think the point i was trying to make is that Rush is actually completely outside of the stream. I think if you go, you know, power windows, hold your fire, roll the bones into um, what was next? Test for Echo and then Counterparts? Is that right? No, Counterparts and then Test for Echo. Okay, Counterparts then. But if you go through that, that seems to follow a reasonable arc. And from even from Test for Echo into Vapor Trails, which was kind of a a left-hand turn, but Presto doesn't really fit sonically anywhere in that spectrum. It's just completely different, I think. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's that vastly different it, in the, the fact the, that... The songs uh, aren't vastly different, but the sound is terribly different. Yeah, Colby, talk about the bass. You said it on the text. I did? Yeah. Can you read it back to me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Presto sounds like it's optimized for radio and television before the uh, home theater boom. It, it sounds like it's little light on the bass, right? Oh, well, yeah, totally. I, I guess that was my comment. It's just, yeah, it's a, you know, it's just a twangy almost. There's, there's like no bottom end to it. You know, it's like they it's, rolled it's off all the lovers. Injustice for all of Rush. Yeah, perfect. perfect. Yes, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, except I think. City. Yeah, it, it's with Injustice for All. Weren't they? Uh, they were, you know, hazing. Um, Jason Newstead. Yeah, Newstead, right? Yeah. Newstead, right? Yeah. yeah. But this, I think, was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> they were goofing on Getty. Hey, let's try yeah. to well, I, you know, I, I I wonder though how much of that comes about from from Rupert because and again most of my experience with Rupert Hine comes from the fix and and honestly when I went back and listened to Rupert's own uh, own releases they they don't sound terribly dissimilar I think that is maybe one of his <clears throat> calling cards it's an interesting choice if well, yeah is, it, if that, that is the, the, uh, the reason I'm talking about it's it's very very strange I would say it's 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 part of the era. Um, music took flight on MTV, and you know, small 
radios, you know, despite boom boxes or whatever, you know, I, I it sounds like he's kind of doing the the TV mix to me. Yeah, and and I I don't think that's that's unreasonable. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I mean, it's tricky. They usually do that stuff separately. Like, oh, this mix is the one you do for this way, and this movie or that way. Uh, right. But it sounds like they just condensed, you know, two or three different mixes for different purposes into one concept. To me. Now, all of that being said, I, I want to go on record very clearly as saying I freaking love this album. Absolutely love it. It's got so, a lot of good. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I. While I agree that the the overall sound is different and maybe it, it lacks some low end and everything else, I still absolutely adore everything about it. So I'm totally good with it, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm I'm bagging on the album because I am no way, shape, or form doing that. Cool. Well, okay. what am I going to give you shit about then? I'm going to give you shit about something. <laughs> we'll find something. <laughs> why? Why? Why does there have to be shit giving? <laughs> Can't we just, all just get along, Tom? No, no, no. <laughs> you just spoil the whole day. I don't know What's what the I'm fun? Doing. What's the fun, indeed? <laughs> I, mean, I, I think, in, in general, yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. I actually, I'd go one step further. I mean, for me, this is actually my top three. Uh, Presto is definitely my top three. Uh, I think yeah. Presto, to me, is. Uh, I don't like it more than Power Windows, but I think it's like a meaty version of Power Windows, where it's just like a, a more raw version of Power Windows. The the songs are similar in in scope, uh, in in texture. Uh, I mean, there's not as much you know keyboard, mind you, but there is still texture and melody. There's sort of like the, there's, there's a similar um, there's, there's a similar melody style that they that 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 both albums have that i i really am drawn to so i mean i've always really loved the this album in the same way that i love power windows and um it's nice to hear the the songs in a little bit more of a, a raw way so i mean yeah this is this is a great album I don't know that I would have thought of that, Tom, but you're absolutely right in terms of, of song structure, melody, etc. This is very closely related to Power Windows. It's very cool. So, quick little sidetrack then. We know two of your top three. What's the third, Tom? Uh, you know, it, it's going to... It sounds ridiculous just having like a newer album, but I mean, Counterparts is... I love that album. I mean, I really... When I heard that album, I was just like... This is just a, a great Rush album. I mean, I, I know um, there are some earlier stuff that has really come to light due to us talking about it, like 2112 and, and certainly Hemispheres. I mean, those have really gone up to the top. But um, I have to say Counterparts. Yeah, I still have to listen to 2112 on vinyl and see if it's any better. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, can't help myself. All right, any other uh, sort of general thoughts or experiences with this album before we get into the uh, the meat of it? 
I have a half formed thought. Should I share it or do you want me to wait till it's more fully? Please developed? do. <laughs> no, let's let's put it out there. I you know listening to this album and then Joe, you and I were uh, chatting yesterday briefly about Vapor Trails again. Um, so I started listening to that and I found myself wondering if for me personally, in my listening experience, there's a drop off after Hold Your Fire and how much, how many songs per album I actually like. Because I said I like Vapor Trails a lot, but when I started listening to it yesterday, I realized it was probably about four songs that really make that album fantastic for me. Okay. Hmm. High qu- higher quality than you think. That's Maybe that's a better way of putting it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, <laughs> I'm wondering. But this album, I think, has some fantastic songs. And I think between, you know, a couple of them, they are, a couple of them are probably some of my favorite Rush songs. But the rest of it, I just listen to it now and I go, hmm. <laughs> so, I don't love it nearly as much as I think I used to. And I'm wondering if there's some sort of drop off in the songwriting for me after Hold Your Fire, because that album I love through and through. You know, I, I'm glad you brought this up because when we talk about the context of the greater music industry, and I meant to, I meant to bring this up, and it had totally slipped my mind. Yeah, I think right now we're we're into the advent of the of the CD, right? Yes. And and yes. so now all of a sudden, and and Ken, you and I had had sort of the the sidebar conversation that it. it it's funny to me, if that's the right word, that the magical 20-minute length of a, of a prog rock epic was ultimately decided by the, the capacity of a 12-inch vinyl LP. And, sure. so, and, and so by extension, you know, the, the, you know, there was only about 40 minutes, give or take, that you could put on, a, on an LP record. And we've, we've also talked in the palaver about you know, Rush and the, you know, their, their track listing and the fact that they didn't have any, any songs in the vault. If it wasn't good enough to be recorded, it didn't get recorded and there wasn't anything left over. And they had the seven, eight or nine songs that were on the record. And that was it. And now all of a sudden bands have, you know, this, this 20 extra minutes to 20 or 30 or 40, depending on, on when you were, because I understand, as I remember, the um, the capacity of CDs generally increased over time, if I remember that correctly. So, so now they've got all this extra space, and maybe they didn't. I, and I, I don't know. Maybe maybe there wasn't that that driving desire to really critically say, you know, this one's not really good enough. It was like, hey, we've got sixty five minutes. Let's put them all out there. It'll be great. And maybe that's what gives rise to some of that. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I think part of the problem that King's X ran into later on in, in their catalog was exactly that. I think they had too much space to fill on the CD and they filled every nook and cranny they could. Mm. And they should not have. Less mm. is more. <laughs> well, I mean, less can be more. You know, when, when you talk about I mean, even Power Windows, Tom, what, I mean, what is that? Eight tracks? Bam. Four on the side and you're done. Well, I, I know um, Permanent Waves is only like six or something, isn't it? Right. Yeah. You know, but but we've all talked about how solid all of those are. I mean, for the most part. Um, and, and, you know, there, there are a couple here. If you asked me, I could probably call off a couple. But uh, but generally speaking, no, I, 
I, I, I, that's my interpretation of this and where we go. The other, and, and I want to say I heard this somewhere, and, and I apologize for whatever podcast if I'm not um, referencing you, but I want to say I heard or read somewhere in preparation for this that this actually was released on vinyl, but the side one was like way longer than side two. And so the the overall loudness of side one was much less. And they had to like warn fans to turn up side one to hear it at the same volume they would hear side two under normal circumstances. I think I heard that. So uh, I'm looking at the track listing right now, and I think that makes sense. What you're saying sounds accurate. Yeah. Side one, side one was one through Presto, so that's six tracks. I don't have my other hand. There it is. And the other ones were Superconductor through Available Light, so it looks like it was lopsided. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing, but that, that may give rise to some of this. Okay. Hey, real quick, you know, Joe, you had asked me what my favorite three. I'd like to know what your, your guys' favorite three are, and if that has changed from the beginning of our Rush chapter to now, and I want to know even if that will change at the at the end. So, um, what um, are your guys' favorite three, and have it has that changed since we have started this last um, this last rush chapter, going through album by album? I don't know about my third. I, I know I've got Grace Under Pressure and Hemispheres as two of those three, and I don't think that's fundamentally changed. In the last 20 years. Um, third one, that's an interesting, interesting uh, question. <laughs> I can tell you it's not test for echo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. or, vapor tra- or vapor trails. <laughs> or, or vapor trails or snakes and arrows. Or, 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 or 2112. <laughs> or, yeah, or, or even 2112. Um, yeah see honestly if you if you put me against the wall and said joe give me the third one right now and we're talking favorite not best i would probably i i I would i would probably gut reaction say signals although permanent waves may be a better option there okay all right colby how about you i'm not prepared Hold your fire is definitely there. I'd probably have to agree with you. The counterparts is another one of my favorites. Um, and then I'm stuck. I'm trying to think through the catalog. Kenny G, while he thinks, what about yeah, you? Yeah, let me think. Colby, I'm so glad you said hold your fire. I I developed a new appreciation for that through this exercise. And uh, uh, Tom, I may hold off to give you a list of three until we finish this exercise. I like being I like being open. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. It's too bad we don't do five albums because you know I'm the guy who might actually put exit stage left in that list. Oh, a lot of albums don't count. Sorry, Ken. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm thinking. My third has got to be Power Windows. Oh, well, oh I completely okay. 
Went right over my head there. Yeah, that's got to be <laughs> it. There we go. Awesome. All right. So, so we start off with with show don't tell, and you know I, 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 I kind of, I kind of don't necessarily want to go through this track by track. More groups, because for me, like show don't tell into chain lightning, I think is, you know, such a a solid opening into an album. Just freaking blows my mind. And then, and I would argue you can even put the pass on there. And then you get into War Paint and Scars, which is a different beast altogether. And then you get into, you know, Presto and Superconductor. And then sort of the, the last half of the album is, is kind of how I see this personally. But, you know, I, I, I do have um, my notes here that um, Show Don't Tell is is awesome, especially with regards to the bass line and, and the drums. Now, I know that we don't, we've already talked, there isn't a lot of, of bottom end here, but I do think the bass line itself is very, very awesome. And the song is, is cool, but it's not, uh, it's, you know, it's not over the top. If we look at, um, if we look at RushVault.com, they've got a quote from Neil talking about Show Don't Tell, and, and it's interesting, he says, um, Show Don't Tell begins with a syncopated guitar riff that appears two or three times throughout the song. That was about the hardest thing for me to find the right pattern for. I wanted to maintain a groove and yet follow the bizarre syncopations that the guitar riff was leading into. It was demanding technically, but at the same time, because of that, we were determined that it should have a rhythmic groove under it. It's not enough for us to produce a part that's technically demanding. It has to have an overwhelming significance musically. Well said, Neil. So is he generally saying that he's not happy with the song because of that? or No, I'm saying, I, I think he. the way I read it is, they had to work hard for that song. Okay. And they worked hard for that song because it, the music, the guitar riff demanded it. And he, I, I read it as he's very happy with it. Good, good, because that's that song is incredible. I mean, that's like the riff from hell. I mean, when that came out, um, I mean, God, that's just one of the greatest riffs uh, ever. Um, and the fact that they actually did make a good song out of it. Uh, it's interesting that you read that, Joe, because there's just beautiful melody after that, and it they actually. It's not just like a wanky song. It's uh, it's the, the chorus stands up and they um, they they really put the rush stamp on it. And um, but the, yeah, I mean that 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 riff. You know, the riff sort of reminds me of you know in Power Windows when you know big money starts. Like you're so overwhelmed by the crazy bass line. I mean, it's it's a great song, and I know we've already talked about all this. But the bass line, it just jumps out at you like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's singing this and playing this. And 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 th in this album, <clears throat> the first song, the riff just jumps out at you like this is um, this is something special. This is something we haven't heard in a while, and this is this is rock. <laughs> this is a really rock, a rock riff, and they they still put the rush stamp on it after that on on both songs so um 
I'm loving this first song. And I don't know if we're going by chunks, but yeah, I mean, all the first uh, couple songs really flow together. Perfect. And, and I'm going to say something, and you guys can agree or disagree with me. You know, the cool thing about, you know, certainly the the fundamental riff there in, and when Show Don't Tell as, as a whole, I think, is it's really not derivative of of anything it's it's rush being rush it's like you know here we are which i i think that's very very cool and and i do think in when you put it when you described the track and and the structure the way you did tom you know that to me is one of the hallmarks of of progressive rock so the fact that you know they 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 took this complicated riff and uh, and, and and then bolted, you know, were able to, you know, combine that into a radio friendly song is is wonderful. Thank you, buddy. Um, Joe. Yes. I, I, I will see your no genre and raise you one. I like <laughs> okay. This. I like this. I like where you're going. It's a good direction. So, um, I think the bands that we follow have found this little personal nirvana. You could say, you know, Marillion has their no-genre moments, and King's X has their no-genre moments. And, and of course, we ascribe genres, and we know their influences, and we know their history, but when they really get into that zone, they do find magic. And, and you could say that, that, that this track, Show Don't Tell, is, you know, Rush, just hitting it fresh, and finding it new. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's that's very well it fresh and finding it new. We gotta we gotta we gotta quote that. That's, that's gonna be uh, that's gonna, gonna come say, back. That sounds like that sounds like a social media ad there, Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, I'll speak heresy then. Um, <laughs> while I like, <laughs> I'll say this: I like the verse on this, and I like the chorus. However, that riff, I, it, at this point in my life, it bothers me. It oh! so, I, you know, it's a great riff, but it's a great riff. But in the song structure, to me, it just doesn't fit. It's like it's like showing off almost. Oh, like I think. Okay, think of an iconic riff like "Free Will." That fits right into the song. It's tight. It's perfect. This one's just sort of like you know, it's, it's just there, but it's like an add-on. It's like they bolted it on. My opinion. Oh, sorry. There you go. Descent. <laughs> well, there. You know, we, we great got, that we all have our different opinions, but I'll be damned if I agree with that. <laughs> oh. Ruin Tom's there, day. Uh, there could be an element of cut and paste songwriting in the rush process here and there. Oh, come on. Well, but 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 let's let's put that in perspective because again, you know, some of some of the I'm going to say the greatest moments in, in progressive rock history, but this is coming from our very distinct perspective came about from Eddie offered literally splicing tape together. So this idea of sort of constructing seemingly disparate pieces is certainly allowed within the genre. Even though I said we, the, even though Ken, you just said this was a, a no genre song, you know, it, it's it's not it's not 
disallowed in any way, shape, or form. So okay, yeah, but that that the Eddie Offord thing is conducive to progressive music. They're getting into the efficiency mm-hmm. of the pop song writing. So Colby is expecting something a bit more fluid and a bit more gelled. Well, and I think if 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 you if you think about you know the the songs and the albums that that we know that Colby likes, I think that makes perfect sense too. And that's okay. I am certainly I would describe myself as on the the outside fringe of um, you know progressive fanhood, fandom. Yeah, well said. If yep. you want something really easy to listen to, that everything sort of flows together in a nice. <laughs> Nice I don't want to. I don't want to have to. I don't want to have to think too much. Marillion.com or something, you know. Yeah, Tom, admit to the progressive forum that that you you studied songwriting, so you know the rules. You read the book, you know, right? Yeah, and the the book is a joke. You shouldn't. (laughs) But but it's there for a reason. It's there for a reason, you know. No, I I disagree. It's because I studied the book. That I disagree with that. There's, there should not be a book. We'll, uh, right. we, we can talk about this when we talk about Genesis, but that's later down the road. So, Show Don't Tell introduces everyone to this bold new rush world. Very exciting, even if some of it is a little disjointed. <laughs> and then we, which some of us like, some of us don't. It's America. Okay, it's good. So that brings us into Chain Lightning, which I think my my initial thought, if you had asked me before I started listening to this album with the lens of, of doing this podcast and, and thinking, trying to think about it more critically, I'm not going to claim that I actually have the ability to do so, but I try. I would have sort of dismissed Chain Lightning, but I'm... I'm currently sort of moving towards the opinion that Chain Lightning actually is a more advanced expression of everything that Show Don't Tell tr- is is trying to, to bring across. Wow. Hmm. Well, did you guys catch any of the uh, blurbs on the net? Um you know, Neil wrote this observing a natural phenomenon in the sky, uh, hanging out with his daughter, the sun dogs, fire on the horizon. It's it's actually, uh, I guess he was on the water, maybe even in a boat, when they saw this uh, visual impression across the sky. Did you catch that? I've seen some of that, yep. I've not. Gives it a nice flavor. Gives it a nice flavor. And I do like the song. Well, I, I you know, and I think, you know, we haven't, we haven't really... We're, we always do this. We always sort of dance around, you know, Neil's lyrics and if they're pertinent or if they're not. And all of a lot of this is on me. I will take that. And again, what what I've come to realize is a lot of the the fear and loathing I have of of late model near Neil lyrics is is again only on reserve for the second half of Test for Echo. Um, there are a couple of instances here which are somewhat questionable. Again, but I think I, I need to do a better job of pointing out and reveling in those things that Neil does very, very well. And I think this 
as a lyricist is one of those times. I, I, I totally get what he's trying to convey to me, and I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah, sometimes his rhymes and alliterations become a bit, you know, over the top, but I, I dig the respond, vibrate, feedback, resonate. It fits yeah. there. It, 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 that is the proper synergy that the fans are looking for with the whole Neil writes it and getting an Alex shove it in somewhere. And I, I think, you know, it just, that just works. And, 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 I, and I love the bitterness breeds irritation and ignorance breeds imitation. If yeah. it fits, it works, it's good. It is. It's very good. I agree. How do you I, guys I, feel? I, too, like this song. Um, and I was going to share a joke because I went uh, on a few hours ago while I was doing some work around the house. And I, I thought about this coming out my freshman year. And I'm wondering how much it subconsciously helped me with my uh, Oceans and Atmosphere class and then Philosophy 101 later on. <laughs> but in that joke, though, uh, you know, it kind of um, sort of says how I feel about it because it kind of blends both the science and the philosophy using this um, illustration of, you know, the astronomical phenomenon or whatever, the sun dogs. But it also ties in that whole philosophical piece of it. So it's really kind of a well-rounded song, in my opinion, lyrically. But I also like it musically because I do think it's a little tighter and a little more smooth than uh, Show Don't Tell. I, I did make the note on here that the solo breakdown is somewhat strange, but be that as it may. You know what? That is true. And so is the very ending. <laughs> yeah. Lurch. Tom, how do you feel about Chain Lightning? I love it. That's all I got to say. <laughs> That's easy. You know, I, I, I don't know if I have um, a lot of comments on on each song per se, but I, I, I will say that, that um, Chain Chain Lightning works well early in the album. Um, there's a certain um, f fluid motion to the first few songs, um, and I, I think it's just a it's a strong song. It's, it's great. Then that takes us into the pats. Now, one of the I'll, I'll stick my tongue in my cheek and say one of the beautiful things about being me is that I can literally, I have gone through a vast majority of my life on some levels completely oblivious. And it wasn't until I started, you know, preparing for this podcast and doing a little bit of research into these songs that the idea that this was somehow about teen suicide first entered my mind. Never picked up on it before. Um, Actually, I, I always sort of, and I still do even now, I, I still, I tend to sort of revel in the, the, the chorus part of this, I think, which speaks to the strength that some people have, um, as opposed to, you know, dwelling on maybe the less savory aspects of it. I, I don't know. Uh, but like I said, I just I, I never really thought about it until I started looking into it. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, I guess that makes perfect sense. Um, that being said, I still I, I do think certainly the, the chorus I find to be. I, I don't I, I find it to be stirring. I find it to be moving. 
really is. I mean, this is, and, and you touched upon it. Um, it's a personal, it, it definitely takes things in a different direction than a lot of Rush songs because it's more of a, a personal type of song, um, which, which is nice. And again, I, I agree with you on, on, on the chorus. One thing I want to say about the past is I would be really interested to see when they wrote the song. I always thought the song, like for a while when I would hear it, um, I always thought the song was on Hold Your Fire. Because really? this song sounds mm. like Hold Your Fire. I mean, I was going a- to say that about Available Light. but i honestly thought for i mean for years when i wasn't really listening to rush albums on a you know daily basis um i just i just uh, always thought of the past as being on hold your fire and i when i went back to, to presto and i heard it on presto i was I was I was shocked, but I guess it doesn't matter. I mean, it's a it's it's a great song, but it's definitely it has the texture of "Hold Your Fire," meaning that it does bring in. Um, it's sort of like a wider open mix, and just a little bit more of a almost like an '80s kind of reverby thing going on um, than the rest of the album, which is which is more raw. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the reverb settings are. It's a, I, it's a great song. It's actually one of my favorite songs, and it's a. This is one of the highlights of the album for me, even though it's a completely different, not not completely different direction, mind you. But I, I think that it is a different direction than some of the other more aggressive songs on the album. This is <laughs> this is a really interesting chorus. Um, I like Getty singing backup for himself, and I rarely say that, but he does such a great job when he says, "Turn around and turn around and turn around," and then he comes in with, you know, "Turn around and walk the razor's edge." Don't turn your back and slam the door on me. It's so yeah, effective. That- so beautiful. Mm, that is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great tune. Great tune. The, the wikis kind of blend in one sentence this song and war paint because they're both about you know teen years or teen angst. Uh, sure. uh, what did Joe's they favorite word? Angst. Angst. <laughs> <laughs> Drink. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> the past and war paint deal with youth issues such as suicide and trying to make oneself attractive to fit in to a group or appear beautiful. So a, a little throwback to subdivisions. Nicely done. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that these guys, Neil, lyrically keeps going back into, you know, sort of that 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 teenage suburban sort of environment. It's it's interesting. And. You know the I don't I haven't done the calculations on what age these guys were at this point, but they're a little bit old to be singing about you know teenage problems, and yet it you know with even war paint, which is 
is not by any stretch of the imagination my favorite, it doesn't it really doesn't come across as overly contrived, which I find somewhat suppressing or surprising. Does anybody actually want to talk about war paint? I was I was kind of going to skip it. You know, I, 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 I honestly I, I'm not just saying this to stir the pot. Actually, war paint is one of my favorite songs in this album. Oh, <laughs> this is fun. You are, you are the first person I have heard Tom to say that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, how many other people talk about war paint? I mean, <laughs> how many other people have you been talking about this with, uh, Joe? <laughs> well, I'm, no, I mean, in, in the in the, uh, the podcast that I listen to, war paint is, generally speaking, broad-brushed, just, I'm not going to say loathed, but held in very low esteem. Oh, I don't... I, don't, uh, I mean, why? why? I, I, well, I, let me bring it to you guys what don't you like about war paint i i honestly don't have much of a problem i i had less of a problem with war paint until i heard what it was about and started paying attention to it and then just like you know the idea that there would be two teenage angst songs back to back by a bunch of on the doorstep of middle-aged rockers just seemed kind of strange to me Um, adult granted rockers yeah <laughs> so you know that, but but that's 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 really contrived. I mean, I I honestly don't mind it. Um, and in fact, I, the the note I have here is that the first verse is total in caps Rupert, and and that's one of the things that I do like about it. I mean, that is as Rupert Hine an expression I think you're going to find on this album. And I also did. Uh, I also noted here under Warpaint that this album is better loud. Okay, aren't they all? Yeah, I, I was going <laughs> to say that, but I, I, I think I think you know this album more so. But you know that being said, that's that's about as much as I have necessarily on uh, on Warpaint. Um, like I said, I, I don't. I I never didn't like it. Although, you know, like I said, some of some of the the sing-songy chorus at the end is a little much, but yeah, that's the best part about it. Really? <laughs> Maybe it's the Bon Jovi in me. I don't know. Well, and, and you know, honestly, Tom, that could very well be because Bon Jovi is one of the groups that I just could never ever stomach. So, you know, if if that's if that's your thing, then that makes perfect sense why I wouldn't necessarily respond to it. Fair enough. So I'll uh, echo Joe. I don't hate this song, but I find it doesn't do a whole lot for me. Though I do really like the solo. I will say that. Okay. And that's that's all I'll say. <laughs> all right, Ken. So you obviously hate this song. Well, Let's what does it. it mean, boys and girls together, paint the mirror black? I, I, I just they they lose me. Well, I think the whole song is about you know the 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 pressure on kids at that age to, you know, appear a certain way, look a certain way, um, act a certain way. So it's, you know, talking about, you know, the girl before a mirror looking at her disguise, a child trying to become her mother with the makeup or, you know, look old or whatever. So it doesn't reflect all over again. What's that? 
Colby, you just sold me on the song all over again. <laughs> I, I so paint the, mirror, paint, paint the mirror black. You're not looking at that reflection of yourself as something else. Is I believe what they're going for. I think that. Okay. Okay. So I shouldn't. I shouldn't read too much into it. That basic premise is consistent through the lyrics, and there are no twists. It just. Uh, I, I think what gets me is some of I that twists. <laughs> sonic dissonance. Um, it's almost too happy to be these lyrics. Hmm. I talked about dissonance in a in a previous yeah episode. right yeah and 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 you know I don't know if this somehow contributes to my obliviousness but but that's part of it I tend to generally react to the feel of the music more so than the the words themselves a lot of times and so that's why I can sort of miss some of these these. <laughs> These heavier things, especially in the Rush catalog, where they package it up in in, in music that doesn't necessarily align with that. Okay, that's where I'm going to leave it. That, that's that's my my criticism. The music doesn't fit the lyrics, and they're they're both independently good, but not not a match. Now, as we move into uh, into the scars. And Ken, you nailed this one absolutely in the text the other day. The beginning of this is Frankie goes to Hollywood, two tribes. Yeah. <laughs> Frankie goes to Hollywood. Was this in a text? I missed all this. How did I miss I like all this? That. Well, I made a reference to the producer of Frankie goes to Hollywood. I, 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 I I probably will never think about Frankie Goes to Hollywood again without thinking of Trevor Horn. If you watch the YouTubers, Trevor was almost, you know, part of the band and making their success. So, so, so we, we, we like Trevor Horn as a member and producer for Yes, and he's got a real powerful influence on the music business around this period. Um, and I, I, I'm just curious if, 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 um, if, if Rupert, and the guys in Rush were uh, somehow influenced a, a tiny bit by that, but I, I, I just love it. I just, I, I just love the. I, I ran this morning, and when I crossed the start line, my Rush playlist hit Scars, and I was freaking out. I loved it. It's such a great tune. I get this feeling, and it just pumps me up. It, it, it it's crafted well. It, it follows a reasonable formula for songwriting and sticks to it and delivers it to me and I can digest it. It's perfect. Um, I think during this period, some of Neil's drumming was influenced by his cycling because the man knows cadence. He just loves to set that pace and, and, and play with it. So Ken, you open the door perfectly. And so again, we're going to have to refer back to, um, to RushVault.com for a quote from Neil from Modern Drummer in 1989. After 20 years of playing, I've developed a lot of things that have proven valuable to me, even the rudiments. The pattern I play with my hands couldn't be played without paradiddles because I have to have my hands accenting in certain places. Without knowing how to do a paradiddle, I couldn't have done that. On Scars, I was playing eight different pads with my hands in a pattern while I played snare and bass drum parts with my feet. I had to organize the different sounds on the pads correctly so they would fall into the order I wanted them to. Wow. 
It works. He uses a combination of acoustic and electric, similar to um, Hold Your Fire is a wonderful example of the way he blends the acoustic and the electric. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he nails it again here. There's there's another. Kobe oh, doesn't believe us. <laughs> trying to get my head around paradiddle. <laughs> Where's Jay when you need him? No, I believe you. I love uh, the drums on this are, you know, hypnotic is probably the best word I can think of for it. There's another great quote here from Alex from Guitar Player in 1991. And uh, I think this speaks to his, his uh, enjoying working with, with Rupert specifically. On Scars, I got free reign on all atmospheric guitar stuff. Some producers we worked with in the past would have said, no, let's print your guitar perfectly clean and experiment later. But it's never the same. I say do it and live with it. <laughs> oh, I love that. It's so true. That's how it's, I record. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you have a sound that you love, there's no guarantee you're ever going to dial that back in. You know? Yeah. I like Ken's approach. I need to listen. <laughs> Check in on this. <laughs> hey, guys. On a, on a personal note, uh, we might want to cut this out. But anyway, uh, so Ken, you when uh, you said um, I get to steal him, and I'm wondering if you guys can help me out with something because this has been driving me crazy. This has been in my head for years. Um, uh, Colby, was it you who wrote a song that went, "I get this feeling when I get close to you." That Paul and I did that in college. I have that song in my head all the time. <laughs> That's so bizarre. <laughs> whenever someone says that line, whenever someone says that line, I hear that song. Really? You gotta wow. hear that song. I have to hear that song. It's been like thirty years. I can't. I. I don't. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> That's funny. I. You know, honestly, I know Paul wrote the lyrics, and he probably wrote most of the music. So I played guitar on it. I remember. I think we stayed up one night like to dawn recording in one of the um the music booths at millersville the practice booths well but, i only uh, heard that song one time and i, I no. still I, I have to hear it. <laughs> oh maybe please, we have a hit on our hands can we find that song please <laughs> i'll look i'll look I, in my bins but i don't know if i have it i have it you know what i think um I'll have to check my, I think it was on my demo back in 92-ish. I think I have it as the <laughs> track. Oh, was that the uh, Into the Sky demo? Yes. I have that. I have it. It's in my truck, actually, in my Walkman. <laughs> I was listening to it like six or seven months ago. <laughs> he said Walkman. I did say walk. <laughs> walk per sorry, walk person. Walk person. <laughs> So anything else on scars then? Other than being perfect, no, sir. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. I don't know if I had gone that far, but I can get behind that. All right. So Presto. Presto is another one of those songs that seems to um, seems to draw the ire of certain Rush fans. Um not quite sure what does that, but I put the note here as I was listening to this that 
I think acoustic guitars turn off Rush fans. Hmm. I don't know why that would be. Um, I don't know why either, but, you know, I, I can think back to, you know, some of the things that I listened to regarding the early albums. And every time Alex pulled out an acoustic guitar, the, uh, the, the, the people involved would sort of get out the, the knives, pitchforks and torches and <laughs> head for the streets. So I, I don't know. I, you know, Presto is one of those songs that I, I, I I don't dislike when I'm in the middle of the flow of the album. It seems to go by great. It's not a song that ever gets stuck in my head. It, I have never woken up and said, oh, I need to hear Presto. But I, I don't have any strong feelings against it either. So I, I'm I'm always a little bit perplexed when, when songs that, you know, elicit such a strong reaction that, to me, just don't seem one way or the other. I did also note here that Getty's voice sounds absolutely spectacular on this. True. Does sound very good. Sounds very good. Uh, I, I, I think I saw somewhere that Presto was not originally part of the set list for this tour, but came along later and, and did eventually pierce the, the, the live sets. Um, it, it's... it's, it's a happy, optimistic, and jangly. When you say acoustic guitars, you don't mean the challenging classical guitar that he did in the early days. This is the jangly. No, I mean that too. <laughs> well, okay, okay. It, I mean, it. Anytime he has an acoustic guitar, it, it seems to piss people off. But even on the old stuff. Oh yeah. So I, I'm just curious, Joe. Who, where, was this from a podcast or from interviews or from... Like yeah, these, these, are, these are podcasts. Like, who, these okay. are podcasts that I listen to. All right. There, there's a, there's a, a several out there. Um, there are... Well, there obviously was um, Leave That Thing Alone, who covered the early part of the catalog. There is Digital Men. There is Stellar Dynamics. And there's a third one, I think, called Rushcast. Well, I, I think a lot of it is, and we've talked about this, you know, and, and I've heard this um, from other places. In fact, I just read it in, um, in Mike Rutherford's book. He, you know, he said it as well. Wherever you hop on to the train line for a particular band, that's what you think is the best. And any change from that is going to be viewed as a change for the worst. And, you know, we came in grace under pressure, hold your fire, whatever. So we think all this stuff is great, but I mean, I can imagine if you came in at, you know, fly by night, this is, this is not the rush you signed up for. And, and Rutherford made the comment, he was talking about Invisible Touch, you know, and people who came in at nursery crime, you know, that wasn't their genesis. So I, I get it. Um, I just, I, I'm slightly amused by it. It is interesting. Hmm. That is uh, very interesting. Well, my I, 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 oh, go ahead, Ken. You take I it. I got a set list up here, the average set list for tour presto courtesy of setlist fm and this song didn't make it 
Um, it's interesting. They waited till their eighth song to put in Superconductor, and then ninth is Show Don't Tell. Ten is The Pass. Um, interesting. They grouped it that way. And then, like, 20 or 30 minutes later, then they've got Scars and Warpaint together. Interesting how they how they kind of did this. I, I, I think I think that challenges the audience. A lot of times you get the band putting some of the new material up front and then people get all yeah. warm and cozy at the end, you know? Mm-hmm. But R- R- Rush is known to challenge their uh, audience in ways that they see fit, you know, as a band. Yeah, I, I've heard that um, about other tours as well. And I never, obviously, I never saw Rush back then. I haven't even seen the videos. I meant to uh, pull them up. We'll have to see if we can get Paul to maybe to pull some up. Was this the tour where the Bouncing Bunnies came out that everyone seems to hate so much as well? Yes, I think so. Yeah. yeah. What, why? Why does everyone hate the Bouncing Bunnies? <laughs> I, I mean, I mean I, and again, I, you, I haven't. Think, I haven't. It's actually haven't a step up from like, uh, you know, naked men. You know, bare butts of naked men. So you know. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 fair point. I, I have not, I have not seen the Bouncing Bunnies, but as I mentioned previously, I was a little perplexed by the, um, by the the washing machines and the people moving boxes off the stage during the first part of a show. I mean, they've done some strange things on stage. So Bouncing Bunnies, I don't know. I have no comment about Bouncing Bunnies. <laughs> You'd think you would see it coming, knowing the album cover and the theme, right? <laughs> you would You would think. <laughs> I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I would think Bouncing Bunnies would be the obvious choice. But right. I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to check out that. And, and like I said, we'll see if we can get Paul to, to link up some, some Bouncing Bunny videos. I'm sure there's got to be one somewhere. Yeah, I just wanted to real fast, I don't have a whole lot of comments on this one, and they're not very analytical whatsoever. Um, I love some of the lyrics on this, and others I just completely go, wait, what? <laughs> like, I am made of the dust of the stars, and the oceans flow in my veins. You know, it's a different spin on that you know, classic idea that we're all made of, obviously, the dust of the stars. And here I hide in the city like a stranger coming out of the rain. I'm like, oh, boy, that just really kind of sours those first two lines um and then same thing with um you know i had a dream of the open water i was swimming way out to sea some of it's really vivid and powerful and yet some of it then i go so it's just kind of unbalanced lyrically but i love the end where it finally kicks into the you know where don't ask me i'm just improvising where the song really kind of drops those drops those pesky acoustic guitars that we all hate and goes right into the rocking piece of it. That that I like, the way the song trails out. So I always thought I liked this song a lot more than I did, but listening to it recently, I realized, ooh, it's kind of middle of the road for me. So those are my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's, and Tom, you've talked about sort of album dynamics for Rush. I definitely think there's a little bit of a, of a trough through the middle part of this, um, but that's just me. It's not just you. Any any other significant uh, thoughts on Presto, the song? I, I, I had to do a search for Rush, Presto, Tour, Rabbits to see what you spoke of because I saw that tour really being my only Rush concert. And they had 
inflatable white rabbits, one on either side of the stage. I, 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 I do see the problem there. Oh, you do? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have identified the problem. And the problem was so bad that you blocked it out of your own memory. <laughs> yeah. I, actually, I forgot about that, too. I think I, I, think I made that show. <laughs> oh, well, listen, awesome. it could be worse. I mean, in Queensryche's Here in the Now Frontier, they had these inflatable ears. Oh, uh, no. I mean, I mean, that was that was ridiculous. There was a, a big inflatable ear, <laughs> probably like 40, like, you know, like 50 feet in the air. That that entire ear motif was was very unfortunate. <laughs> Thank God they didn't name another body part. Yeah. Oh! Thank God. Could have been anything well, up mean, on that stage. Yeah, <laughs> and, and we're, we're we're totally off topic. But I mean, that. That that album cover was bad. The floating ear at the concert was. I mean, just stop. And that was definitely the jump the shark moment for. Yes, yes, it was. And and it wasn't even a particularly good album, as I recall. But we'll deal with that another day. Yes, I've been dying to talk superconductor, and the reason I've been dying to talk superconductor, and has to do with this this one note that I have written down in my little notebook, and it says. This song should piss me off. But it- <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> now, I'm anticipating having this exact same note when we get to roll the bones next time. <laughs> but but it, it, this, is, this is the first place that it shows up. Now, I think it's funny that, you know that Rush has this sort of almost compulsive need to sort of bite the hand that feeds it. Because this is, what, the second or third time they've taken sort of like an overt shot at at the music industry in a song that ironically ends up getting played on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) Video kills the radio star, man. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Nice. and, And like I said... On the on the whole, the, the the song the song really moves. You know, it, it's it's got that sort of cool groove to it. But when you think about the superconductor, it's like, <laughs> what the fuck is that? I love that. Well, and that that's the thing. If you think about it intellectually, oh. and if you say it sort of out of context, you're like, God, that's the worst idea ever. But when you're listening to the song, you're like, Yeah, right on, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When I was running this morning, this came on. It was perfect. But in prior <laughs> listenings, I thought they were composing for Nickelodeon. I just get it. Oh. I, <laughs> it's like your lesson, your physics lesson on on a battery charge. This is your. Oh my goodness! It was dreadful when I when first. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, Joe, I agree with your note. Your note was your right. Right, your right thought there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it you should hate it. <laughs> it's it's weird. It's very very strange. Very weird. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, I guess I guess that's enough on that. Now, now we have to let's 
let's go to Anagram and, and talk about Neil and his, his, you know, let's find something new and weird to do when we create lyrics. So, hey, how about Anagrams? That'll be great. I have two words for it. Lyrical masturbation. <laughs> he would he would admit to that probably. I'm done. <laughs> he would admit to that in his low voice. Um, agreed, agreed. Just reading about it was painful. Reading the lyrics <laughs> was painful. Well, I don't but, want to take the time to see what the anagrams are because I'm just too worn out. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and, and that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay, Neil, I, I and, and, you know, who am I to, to, to be giving Neil Peart shit? Because this guy has had to write a lot of lyrics <laughs> over, over the, uh, over Rush's career. And, you know, sometimes maybe you gotta, you gotta find a, 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 a gimmick to sort of keep yourself engaged. Got it. Totally <laughs> on board. Um, you know, and, and, and again, for someone like me, and, and I think, you know, I never realized that I was this much like Paul in this regard that, you know, lyrics are, are usually, and a lot of times, the last thing I sort of latch onto in a song. Um, once I do latch on, if I resonate with them, I'm, I'm, that's the only thing I hear from there forward. But you know, a lot of times, so I, Anagram, the fact that the actual lyrics don't really say much of anything hasn't really ever bothered me. You know, it's just, it's one of those songs, again, where I don't really think too much of it either way. It, it is funny, though. We've talked before about sort of the the fun character of these guys, the goofiness of them. So you've got this this subtitle from, for Mongo, and Mongo apparently is a, a character in Blazing Saddles, which I've never seen, but it it's another one of those sort of clues that these guys love to goof around, have a, have a good laugh. Um, you know, it goes with the, with the three stooges intro to show of hands and, and things like that. You know, these guys, they're, they're goofy and that's okay. Hmm. I'm, I'm surprised more of the goofiness doesn't come out in their music because every interview I've ever you know heard of them, they're always joking around and they have like a quick wit between them. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's not to say that their music is too serious, but I'm I'm surprised that you don't have more of a sense of humor in some of it. Or maybe it's just hidden and I don't get it. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think you're absolutely right, Tom. I, you know, when we talk about, you know, well, a lot of these songs, and, and maybe this is the difference between getting Alex and, and Neil, um, but, but you're right. It, like I said, it, you know, they, they do, if you think about the, the album covers and all of the sort of cute little, you know, messages that they stick in there and how they, they have wordplay off, off of the images that they use. And then, um, you know, again, you've got the, the Three Stooges bit, uh, you know, to, to open up the show and, and, and you know, referencing, um, you know, a Blazing Saddles character in, in a song title. And, and even even on um, Exit Stage Left, Broom's Bane, you know, it's kind of a, a poke at, uh, at Terry Brown. You know, it's, they, they bring that out often. They put it right in front of you, but they never let it circumvent the music. 
so we can go on then, then to uh, to Red Tide, which is is Neil putting his arms around the Earth. <laughs> um, this led me to look up Red Rain being called Red Tide. Uh, apparently, Peter Gabriel's Red Rain is not so much about the phenomenon of acid rain. Uh, it's it's more artistic than that in a dream involving wine bottles. Uh, although it really does seem to imply something about acid rain, whereas Neil Peer is taking on acid rain directly. He is taking on acid rain, but isn't isn't Red Tide, doesn't that have something to do with um, algae or something like that? Yeah, yes, for working in the water to get the water red, yeah. Yeah. It's an algae explosion, right? It kills off the fish because they eat up all the algae, eats up all the oxygen and something like that, if I recall correctly. If you had red rain that gave way to red tide, you might have red rum. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that was lame. Sorry. <laughs> I was, you know, clutching at straws. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i love it uh, we should you make know, you some of that all right i mean some I, actual you know, rum, not blood this this is this is one of those times where where neil literally gets right up in your face and says hey this is what i'm talking about this is a big deal now whether or not you know like we while there are still obviously climate change discussions and, and all of that, that that's going on, um, you know, in greenhouse gases and and all of the other business that, that goes into that, you know, acid rain specifically is not one of the things that we talk about sort of on a on an ongoing basis in modern society. And so or even even the actual red tide itself for for that portion of it. So I think what happens is in sort of the the lens of today's society, this can look outdated, quaint, whatever you want to call it. Um, but for me, I, I don't necessarily see it that way. And I still think I find this song to be very, very enjoyable. I find it to be, it's not, um, it's not incongruous, Ken. I think that the music and the lyrics do sort of fit well together and, and present sort of an importance, if you will. And, um, mm. you know, I, I, think, I think the song rocks. And I also like the piano in it. It's well done. It's got the dire minor vibe similar to prior albums. Uh, maybe Grace Under Pressure, I'd say. Do you guys see this fitting on Grace? Yes. Oh. Yeah, but they already had too many uh, reds on that album, so they yeah, had to get wrong yeah. red. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I. I. I just had a flashback to our conversation about Seasons End. Uh, whereas, uh, didn't Paul come up with uh, some uh, evidence that uh, at least Steve Fogarth said that uh, Seasons End may not have been articulated very well and kind of put together with a little bit of misinformation and yeah, just looking back, you know, what we know now, the artist does their best to communicate something that's scientific in nature and, and gets a part of it, but maybe not the whole picture. Yeah. 
I, I, I think that's fair. Um, but like I said, for me, I, I, I still like it. Interesting um, quote here from Alex from Guitar World in 1990. I wanted to get a lot of tension in that solo because the song is quite intense. There's a kind of disturbing feeling about that solo, which I think ties it all together well. Nice. He then goes on to say, the song is angry. <laughs> At least he didn't say angst. No, he did not. Well, that's we, we respect Alex. He wouldn't say that. Fair enough. Colby, is this the uh, rush you learned to love early on? No. No. <laughs> not. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't quite hit the, the vibe. Okay. They didn't hit the mark with this one. All right. Yeah, again, like I, I think maybe it was Joe that said it earlier. It's like it's, it's like Neil hitting me over the head with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. Although so, it's interesting. I had some other twisted thoughts about this song, but I'm not going to share them where they're recorded. <laughs> we can catch them later. Whoa, 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 talk about a tease. Uh, I'll put them on WhatsApp after. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. Now I'm frightened. Not good. So, so Colby, does the does the overt message sort of turn you off for this, or? Well, I, you know what, musically, it never really grabbed me to begin with. I think, um, and, and yeah, I don't know. It's um, yeah, this is not a false alarm. This is not a test. I, I don't know. It just all seems a little too. You know, you get more used to the. I think the slightly veiled thematic approach to a lot of these songs, you know, the magic, right. the, that theme runs through the whole album. This is sort of just like a environmental plunk right in the middle of the, not in the middle the end of the album. Uh, it just feels out of place, I think. And, and have they used the, the word red in titles too much at this point? <laughs> well, you know, grace under pressure was just mentioned that, there was a lot of red on that, but of course that whole album was basically the cold war album. Um, so maybe it was unavoidable. This is obviously something totally different. Yeah. That was the Barchetta, but it was a red Barchetta. So what are you going to call it? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh boy. But it's a good we point. Should do a, they, we should do an they, episode of just red songs. Red song well, by Rush. <laughs> what? There's 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 red Barchetta, red sector A, red lenses, red tide. Is there one on Hold Your Fire? I want to say that there is. You think I would know since we talked about it? Well, it's got long. a red album cover, so it does have a red album cover. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's probably even more. Who knows? Possible. Grace Under Pressure is gray. Are you talking about Grace Under Pressure? Hold Your Fire is gray. Oh, okay. I was going to say. All right. All right. Anything else on Red Tide? Tom, how do you no. feel? For or against? I, I'm not... I don't have a problem with the style of lyric. You know, I know, you know, Neil gets a little heavy-handed <clears throat> with some of this stuff. And I think after a while, you, you go with it um, because you love the band and because you because you love the band. I mean, what else can I say? So I, I, don't, I, I don't know if I have any of the problems that you guys have with um, the subject matter or the, um, the Neil Peart lyrical style that sort of gets a little heavy-handed. Uh, I, 
I think it's a beautiful melody and I, it, it grooves and the whole the whole song works. So I think it's great. One last comment about it to point out how dated it is. The term red tide is being phased out among researchers because tides are not necessarily red and they are unrelated to the movements of the tides. So he was way off. <laughs> wow. All right. It's another season's end. It happened. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, I was wondering if it was really caused by pollution. And that brings us to Available Light. Wait, Hand Over Fist. Oh, yes, you're right. Hand Over Fist. See, I don't even have a note on Hand Over Fist, which tells you how much I consider that song. Oh, Sub come on. Subconsciously I, jumping over it? Uh, yeah, apparently so. <laughs> Subconsciously. But, but that's, not to, that's not to say I don't like it. I just don't consider it very much. It worked in my run this morning, and that's the only time it worked. Really? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Tom, I have the I have the feeling that you are very very fond of Hand Over Fist. I I really love the the song. I think it's a very very fun way. Uh, well, actually, this contradicts what I was just saying about their sense of humor. Um, I I think that this song does have a sense of humor, and uh, really? it's a fun light hearted way of talking about the of using the game of you know rock paper scissors and i think it's a, a clever way of doing it and uh in the at the end of the day it doesn't matter how clever something is i mean if it's if it works in a song and it if it's something that you are emotionally engaged in you're 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 going to go with it and i think they they did it in that way and i think it's just uh it, it's a it's catchy but it's not overly you know, poppy. I mean, it's, I, I, I think it's a, I think that part of the song is great. I, it's something that I sing all the time. I mean, it's actually, it's uh, very, really, song. yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting sort of taking rock, paper, scissors and building a song around it. Yeah. And again, Neil, Neil is not afraid to go out and look for, like I said, something to sort of keep him engaged or, or to give him an idea for a lyric. And okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think, Joe, you touched upon it with Tess for Echo. I think he sort of, there are points in that where he, you know, crossed the line. <laughs> um, and, Talk about jumping the shark. Uh, yeah, I was actually going to say the word jump the shark. But, um, <clears throat> I think that there is a, you know, suspension of disbelief, if you will, where there's, there's a, a point where you don't just go with it anymore. You, you sort of get taken out. And um, there's nothing on Presto where that has happened to me. Uh, um, but yes, I would agree with you. And I know we're not there yet, but for Test for Echo, some of it gets pretty ridiculous. So, um, but I, I, I don't think we're there yet with this song. Yeah, and I, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you at all. For the second time on this album, I'm going to call soundtrack dissonance even unintentional soundtrack dissonance yeah. where it's a relationship song and there's something buggy in the relationship but the music is way too up tempo and bright it is very bright can i agree with you completely let me see if i can spin some clarity 
around this because <laughs> I just had I just had to read through the lyrics. I had to scan through to remind myself what the song was actually about. <laughs> so tell me if you all agree. This song's actually about overcoming those things that separate us and tear us apart. That's the paper around the stone metaphor, and that's the positive music. So. I'm going to say it's not as dissonant as I first thought it was, I think. But I agree with you. That second verse is very dark. But I think it's going for a more hopeful spin with the whole, what is it? Hand over fist. Hand over fist, paper around the stone, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what he's going for there. Okay. My thoughts. My thoughts. Because I thought the exact same thing as I'm sitting here listening to it where Tom's talking about how upbeat and, you know, kind of bright it is. I'm going, yeah, but these, there's talking that thing. How could I ever be so wrong? My favorite song. Ironically, you know, I've hated that song for so long. Like Anagram for Mongo. Yeah. That must, that must be what she's listening to. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's, I, I like this song too. Um, I, again, that whole uh, the, the, the little teensy weensy guitar at the beginning of it, though, it just makes me go, oh, I wish that were a little more something. I don't know. A little more robust. But that's yeah. that's kind of the whole the whole sound on the album, right? Is that tink, 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 tink. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Alex owes you <laughs> of all of us. <laughs> we forget the solos, but you're Colby. You're, you're remembering the um, yeah, Alex should send you a note here. You're, you're doing you're doing him a solid. You know, so wait, it's not, wait. Does, does Alex owe Colby dinner? That's a spin for us. <laughs> yes, I would like out. I would like dinner with Alex. He's enough of a jokester to go for it. Get, give him a shot. Nope. <laughs> you could have some red snapper soup. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you know what? I'll, I will point out though, where I'm complaining about the the clean guitar sound on this, the the solo, not only the solo itself, but also the sound of the guitar for the solos, I really do like on this album for the most part. Presto, this song and Available Light are the ones that really kind of come to mind. So I'll throw that out there. Can we talk about Available Light, please? Let's do it. I'd love to. Oh. God, I love this song. I have a feeling there won't be any arguments on this one. <laughs> really? Well, I, I would hope not. Um, I mean, but but maybe there is. You know, I, I just, there's something about this song that just freaking knocks me over. Oh, I just, I love everything about it. I, I think it's, I think it's powerful. I think it's very moving. I think it's beautiful. I just, every, everything about it, you know, it's, it's one of those times where, you know, uh, you know, Ken, you've been going on about bravado. When I was thinking about these two songs, I have available light and bravado sitting on a shelf, you know, way up at the top encased in all sorts of, you know, high end crystal with, with gilded corners. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I, oh, good Lord. I, I don't, yeah, I, I have no idea what Rush felt about when they, when they recorded this song, 
or if it resonates with them the way it resonates with me. But if I were Rush and I recorded this song and it would be one of those things where, you know, when you're sitting in the room and you play it back and you just stop and you go, fuck, we did it. We did it. We're done. We, you know, I, I, I don't see how you can feel any other way. I mean, you've got to feel something special about writing and recording a song like Available Light. Very nice work. It's a great way to finish an album, that's for sure. I love his vocal quality. I mean, we can get into the lyrics. Um, the thing that hit me before I even paid attention to the lyrics, of course, was this glorious production in his voice where he just, just, just had the right thing going at the right time. Uh, he does a D5 on that high part at the end of the chorus. And that's pretty far up there. In a previous episode, we talked about the, um, you know, the, the F sharp five and, and the E fives that he had, e, e, you know, even screechier stuff. But this isn't quite in the screech. It's like pure head voice vocalization. It's so nice. You guys catch that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Love it. Love and, it. And, and the fact that there hasn't been, you know, a lot of screeching going on on this album and, and maybe even, a, you know, an album or two before, the fact that he, he dusts it off here, I think, lends a little bit more weight to it. Well, and we're also going to bring this up when we talk about Rupert Hine. Because we have uh, a number of things with uh, Getty's voice that yeah. uh, Rupert was, was was discussing. So, oh, teasers, killing me! Gonna have to tune in for that episode, boys. It's a good one. So, I mean, I I I waxed rhapsodic, waxed rhapsodic about available light, and everyone just kind of nodded their head. Any any other, you know, any what did I miss? What did I not express well? Uh, besides Getty's voice, obviously, Ken. I, I think he expressed it all really well. Um, you know, what I would add to it, <clears throat> this is one where I think if I, you know, I'm sitting here reading through the lyrics right now, there's so much opportunity for the lyrics to be kind of predictable, given the content, you know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But they flow, they're, they're flawless, you know. You don't want them to be, um, the word's escaping me. Cliche, it's a word I yeah. use a lot, so I should know it. But they really, I mean, they just, it grabs onto that theme about the wind and running and you know, the weather, and it just, it all works. I mean, you read through it, it's like, it's, it's poetry. It's great. Well, and, and yeah, and, and I think you feel it, you know? Absolutely. And I wonder if how much of this is motivated by cycling again. Awesome. <laughs> Well, the, the, the tempo wasn't great for my run, but I knew the chorus was coming. <laughs> so yeah, that, that'll give, yeah. That, that'll give you a little motivation, right? Just to get through it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and I'll make another observation. Sorry, I'll, I'll make another observation, no, yeah, too. Yeah. Uh, unlike other parts of this album, I feel like the production is perfect for this song. The, the dryness, the space, the reverb, yeah, yeah. you know, particularly in the, in the verses, just it, it fits it perfectly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sparse, sparseness of it. 
Tom, any any sort of overall thoughts on available light? Well, beyond what you've already said, as you were as you were talking about available light, I was like, wow, this is how I feel about war paint. <laughs> like you could, you could actually cut and paste your comment and put it in the war paint segment, and I would have been like, yeah, right on. But uh, no, I I, uh, I listen. I love the song, and I think it's a great way to finish an album. I mean, it's. Um, it, 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 it is probably the perfect way to, to, to finish an album like this. So um, it's, a, it's a great song. I, I've, I've got a quote here from, from Getty, um, uh, reference to, to guitar player in 1990. And, and I don't know that it really adds anything to what we've been saying, but it, it is interesting. Quote, on a tune like Available Light, where the bass just provides some simple low-end support, I'd rather play the keyboards and sing. It's just a question of what instrument will be rewarding to play from a player's point of view. If the keyboard is simply playing a strict four-chord repeating pattern, then I'd rather just program it into some MIDI pedal and have some fun playing bass. So, Cool. He's right. He's right. Love it. All right. So, you know, I, I... that brings us to the end of Presto, gentlemen. Now, again, I, I'm going to make the the argument further when we do roll the bones that this album exists outside of Rush Time. Um, I don't know where it came from. I don't know why it is, you know, here. I don't know why Roll the Bones didn't sound more like it, um, unless maybe they they just, you know, weren't necessarily happy with what happened but i mean i I don't know that being said i do think um i I think this is a really really solid album i I really do enjoy it i've enjoyed it since i first heard it it was one of those albums where i hadn't really listened to it in a long time and i was (laughs) concerned when i dusted it off to prepare for this episode and i've been listening to this probably for the better part of i don't know i'm gonna say six weeks at this point i mean pretty solid and, you know, when I first put it in, I was like, yeah, this is as good as I remember. That's nice. Nice. Agreed. Definitely. I think they love the songs, but there were things about the way it all came together that they would redo. Um, there was a quote from Neil somewhere that, you know, just, just, just this one of, of all didn't quite come out like they intended. And I wonder how much of that is reflected of, you know, the new relationship with, with Rupert. I, I and, and I, that's not a, that's not a lead in to, to the Rupert conversation because we didn't really discuss that explicitly. Um, but it, it is interesting that, you know, this is the first album with Rupert. And it sounds different. And then they sort of get back more into the vein of where they were. It's almost like, you know, the, the, the two parties learned how to maybe work with each other. I don't know. Yeah, I think I read something like that too, Ken, um, that Neil wasn't too happy with Presto. And I, w- I remember asking myself, uh, wow, if you're not happy with it, why would you ask uh, the same producer to come back to do another album? Well, yeah, exactly. And, and what, certainly from Neil's point of view, what is there not to be happy about? He sounds freaking awesome. Yeah, yeah. 
The quote is, that was an album that, for all of us, or maybe I should do the, the new voice, that was an album that, for all of us, um, should have been so much better than it was. If we could do one album again, it would be that one, because we still love the songs from it, but dot, 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 you can never make magic happen. So he never really articulated what it was, but just probably group consensus was there were things that they, that they, that they didn't nail that they were going for. Interesting. Hmm. That is, that is very interesting. Hmm. Uh, I look forward to hearing or talking about his thoughts on roll the bones and how happy or unhappy he was with that one. Yeah. But that's another chapter, gentlemen. Yes. Yes. Gentlemen, I look forward to the next time when we get to uh, to talk Roll the Bones. And uh, for all of you who have listened thank you very much for listening to this episode of progressive collaborator we encourage all of your thoughts and your comments um, on the various forms of social media we are available as always on instagram facebook and twitter we are at progpala p-r-o-g-p-a-l-a on all of those where you can search for progressive collaborator you can email us our email address is progpala at gmail.com and Progressive Palaver is, as always, available for subscription and download on both iTunes and Google Play. We are hosted on SoundCloud.